one. Now I begin reading at verse thirty four to the end of the chapter. Jesus here is teaching his disciples. Uh, Matthew tells us it's on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Amen. Now, Jesus, you'll recall uh, by way of uh, introduction, was at the temple teaching and they were actually uh, watching people make offerings. And it wasn't just a visual uh, observation. It also was an audible uh, observation, because remember, they don't have dollar bills that they're flipping out uh, or checks that they're folding and throwing in. Um, it was coins. And, and so anybody who gave a great amount, you know, kind of you could hear that they were giving a great amount. You know, it's kind of like when you go to the bank and you got all, you know, you got your jar of coins and, you know, you dump it in there and it makes a huge racket uh, in the bank. And uh, and so they're like, oh, wow, look at all that. And and then the, this woman gives two little copper coins and and Jesus goes on to explain that she actually gave more than the people who were making all the clatter with their coinage. Because that was all that she had to live on. Others were giving out of their discretionary income, out of their surplus. And so they are admiring the building as they're there. And Jesus then gives that stunning prophecy that the temple is going to be destroyed. He actually even says that not one stone would be left upon another. Well, this, of course, raises questions that the disciples raise privately with Jesus when they get back to the Mount of Olives. And they want to know Jesus, you know. When is that going to happen? What's the sign of your coming? And in response to that, Jesus prefaces his answer by first saying, don't forget your theology. Uh, There are going to be people who are going to use these coming days as an opportunity to to claim that they're the Messiah. And he said, don't believe them. Don't go after the false messiahs. You'll know when the true Messiah returns. Number two, he said, don't panic. There's going to be a lot of tribulations going on. It's just going to be another day in the CNN headlines. Uh, you know, there's always problems out there. There's always wars, rumors of wars. There's always these viruses, you know, that we name uh, out there. And, and that's just par for the course. And then Jesus said, but here's what you do need to know. And he's speaking to his disciples that he says, when you guys see the Gentiles coming in mass against Jerusalem, You need to leave because God is handing Jerusalem over to the Gentiles within this generation. God is going to give up Jerusalem. Don't don't seek safety behind the walls of Jerusalem. Know that that God is bringing days of vengeance and you need to go. And so if your coat is in the house and you're out in the field, don't go in the house to get the coat. Just go now immediately leave. 
And we know historically that the early church, by and large, did follow Jesus's commands uh, that, the, that the church, the Christians did get out of Jerusalem uh, when the Roman army under General Titus in A.D. 70 came and surrounded. If you've ever done any historical reading on the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, it's just a horrific uh, story. One of the worst uh, historical events ever. So that led us then the last week. Last week we got to verse 25 to 28. And here's where the, the, the opinions are divided, even in the Reformed community. And that was, is Jesus continuing to talk about the destruction in Jerusalem when he gets to verse 25? Or is he talking about the second coming? When he uses the language of the signs in the sun, the moon, the stars on the earth, dismay among the nations, the perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Is that apocalyptic language being used to describe the events of AD 70? You know, as some who are in favor of what that is called the preterist view would say that, you know, when you listen to the eyewitness accounts of those who saw 9-11 just a few blocks away from the Twin Towers, they will tell you that it was as though the sun had been blotted out and as though these stars were falling. It seemed as though the world was coming undone. So some argue that it's still Jesus is continuing on with the destruction of Jerusalem. Probably the strength of that argument can be found there in verse 32 when Jesus says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that that generation meant that generation. There are others who say, no, that Jesus is employing a common prophetic uh, type of speech here, not just in using the figurative language of signifying destruction here, but he is telescoping out into the future. Sometimes the like Isaiah would do this, you know, Isaiah is speaking to Hezekiah and Hezekiah has a question, you know. What, you know, and, and, and the Lord would speak to Hezekiah about things that were near, but then he would speak of things that, that we know are fulfilled in Christ 700 years later. Is Jesus doing something like that, referring to his second coming? And I think the strength of that argument can be found in verse 28, maybe, where it says, but when these things take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And it's hard to see how. The destruction of Jerusalem is the redemption of the church drawing near uh, as easily as you could with the second coming of Christ. So there are arguments to be made on both sides. And I I'm not particularly uptight as to which one you choose. Um, I I have gone back and forth over the years in my own mind as to what is going on in that little section. But here's what I do want us to focus on. Whether you think these verses pertain to the destruction of Jerusalem and have application for us today, or whether you think those verses still are outstanding in their fulfillment with regard to Christ coming again. Here are the two applicatory points that Jesus makes. Number one, he says, watch. And number two, he says, pray. And so I'm going to use that as the application of our text from last week, and I touched on it last week, but now I'm going to make an entire sermon out of it today. So number one, point number one is going to be watch. And point number two simply is going to be pray. Point one comes from verse 34 and verse 36. And the second point to pray comes from verse 
36. So look with me again at verse 34 as we begin now to talk about the first point and the first application, which is to watch. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says, be on guard. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Be on guard is my emphasis. Then look at verse 36. Same emphasis, but keep on the alert at all times. Keep on the alert, praying that you have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Keep on the alert. Be on guard. Now, what does that mean? Boys and girls, young children here, I can apply this, I think, in a way that you can understand. Be on guard means to be like a soldier who is keeping the watch, especially at night. In those days, the Defense Department set up, if you will, not radar like we have today, not satellites that we have to give us advanced warnings of things going on and to protect our nation today. But you had what they called sentries or guards, and they would stand usually on the city wall. The cities were guarded by great walls and you would post them. And you can read about that, for example, in the book of Nehemiah, when they were rebuilding the wall. What did they have? They had a trowel in their hand to put the cement, smooth the cement out and put the bricks and as they built the wall. But they also had a sidearm, had a sword. And it was a very difficult time in the life of Jerusalem because they had to build during the day. But they had to also keep watch at night. And they had to take turns. I was talking to my nephew who just uh, finished OCS training, officer candidate school for the Navy. And one of the things they make young officers do or men who are training to become officers is you got to stand guard. You got to know what it's like. Uh, and so um, I asked Peter about that. I said, hey, I got this sermon coming up about watching. Can you give me a little insight? What was it like, you know, when you were doing OCS? He said, well, he said uh, they had different types of watches. Uh, they had watches where you stood at the gate and uh, watched and, and guarded at the gate. They had watches where you patrolled where you went around, you checked on the various rooms on the, on the base. Um, they had watches at different times. He said the hardest watch he found was the 2 a.m. to the 4 a.m. He said, you know, you, you get done at 4 a.m. and you, you go back to your to your uh, dorm room and and you only get one hour of sleep because then they wake you up at five and you've got PT, you know, immediately after that. So he said that was always difficult um, on the body. But they would do these two hour shifts and they would either stand at the entrance or they would do what they call a junior officer on the deck and they would report to the senior officer. And they had that about every sixth day. Um, these OCS candidates had to do that. Well, Jesus here is saying <coughs> that as Christians, we have to be on duty and on guard in our lives. And there are two particular areas that Jesus seems to indicate we need to be particularly on guard against. Number one is what he calls dissipation and drunkenness. That is a life of pleasure and partying. But then also, Jesus seems to indicate we also need to be on guard against 
the problems, the worries, the responsibilities of life. You'll see that in verse 34. He says, don't he says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation. Dissipation is kind of prodigal living. It's spending your time and your resources, your money, your energy on basically a party lifestyle. Being a socialite. He says that you will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness. But then he says, and the worries of life. That is, even if you're not giving yourself to the life of society and living, you know, this kind of um, party, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of life, um, that even if you're living a sober life, that you don't also give yourself over to all the responsibilities that you have, the bills that need to be paid and the chores that need to be done and the shopping that's got to get, that you you end up uh, losing sight of Christ that way. He said, be on guard. Uh, In both cases, the problem, as I said last week, with the two brothers in Luke 15, the two sons of the father is that they neither was on guard. The the younger brother is the famous one or the infamous one because he goes out and he lives the party lifestyle. He does give himself to dissipation and drunkenness. And he's not on guard against that. But the older brother's not on guard either. The older brother, remember, what's the older brother's complaint when when he realizes his brother, younger brother who's come home is getting a party. And he said, I've never had a party. I've never neglected a command of yours. I've been doing every chore and every, you know, rule that I had to do. And I'm always out there in the fields while you're partying. I was actually out in the fields. And neither of them are guarding. Neither of them realize that they've allowed themselves to drift away from the Lord. They're both alienated from the father. It's not just that one is alienated from the father. And that's what Jesus was trying to say. There, there are two crowds out there. there. There were the tax gatherers and the, and the publicans in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to. But there are the Pharisees there, too. And we need to be on guard against uh, a life of sensuality and partying. But we need to be on guard against Pharisaism as well. So beware of move, your life moving away from God and Christ. For the desires of pleasure, ease, luxury, a life of entertainment, sensuality. Dissipation is defined as wasteful, self-indulgent spending of time, energy and resources. This is a common pitfall, unfortunately, with many young college students, particularly the freshmen. That's the most vulnerable year, young people and parents of young people. The freshman year, as somebody who has ministered on the campus now for over 17 years at LaGrange College, as somebody who has gone to college himself, I can tell you it's the freshman year that I think the vulnerability is greatest, when you need to be most on guard. They get away from accountability. They get away from the support of the family, of the church, even from hometown people that they knew. And and things go awry. Jesus says, be watchful, be on guard, be alert, like a sentinel who's watching for signs of an approaching enemy. What is the enemy we're to be watching out for? Well, the enemy really is within ourselves. We are usually our own worst enemy in the Christian life. So if I'm supposed to be on guard, if you're supposed to be on guard, what actually are you to be watching for? Well, let me give you a number of things that I think you need to be watching for and on guard against. 
First of all, you need to be watchful over your own soul before the Lord. And to take stock as to whether you're in close communion with him. Do you feel his nearness? Does the Lord seem distant to you? Do you delight in him? That is a real delight. Do you delight in his word, his people, his fellowship? Do you delight in secret moments alone with him? Is your soul blessed? Is your soul profiting from the Lord's day, from worship services, from preaching, from teaching? Do you find yourself hungering for him, thirsting after him as the deer panteth for the water, says the psalmist in Psalm 42. So my soul longeth after thee. You think about a deer that in Australia through the fires where the the water was scarce and there's tremendous heat and danger about them. So the psalmist is saying, that's how I wanted the Lord. I was seeking the Lord. Uh, Do you want to be with the Lord more than anyone or anything else? Or are you getting preoccupied with the world to the detriment of your own soul? Are you manifesting the fruit of the spirit to a lesser degree? How is the fruit of love in your life? Love for God, love for others, love for spouse, love for your church. How is your joy? Are you characterized as a person of joy? Are you or are you becoming rougher? More impatient lately. Are you becoming shorter with your wife, with your children, with your co-workers? Are your answers shorter, snarky? Anything that begins to move your heart away from the Lord, Jesus says, be on guard against. And so we have to ask ourselves, young people, am I getting too caught up in in fun, in the social scenes? Am I giving myself inordinately in regard to my time, to social pursuits? Is my calendar too full with parties, entertainments, games? Is my conscience bothering me that I'm not working hard enough, that I'm not utilizing my time well enough? You know, a lot of times, you know, students are saying, oh, I'm, I'm just exhausted. I'm working so hard. Well, you know, I'm staying up so late studying. Well, you're staying up so late studying because you didn't you didn't measure it out and you're cramming at the end. And, and you're not taking a Sabbath. And so, yeah, you, you, you're partying and you're staying up late and then that, then you have a little time left for studying. So you're staying up late to study. And you're not using your time. You're cheating nature. And that'll catch up with you sooner or later. One of the other things I think we need to be on guard against is as we watch over our own souls. But also the Bible says we need to be on guard about our choice of company. Friendships. This is an important choice and it requires wisdom. In my experience as a pastor, the choice of one's friends is actually one of the earliest warning signs that something is awry in the young person's life. Young people and those of us who are older, and I'll give some examples here from older folks in a minute. uh, People can move away from the Lord secretly, inwardly, undetected by pastor or parent or friend. 
they can they can secretly move away from close communion with Christ, at least for a while. But the earliest outward sign, I think, is sometimes who they choose to hang out with. Bad company does corrupt good morals. People often say, well, you know, Jesus hang out, hung out with Jesus, hang out with sinners. To which one pastor said, you don't know who you are in that story, though. (laughs) You're not the Jesus figure. (laughs) You're the sinner and Jesus is hanging out with you. Um, That's not to say that we don't have relationships and friendships uh, with the ungodly. Otherwise, Paul says we would have to go out of this world. But who do we choose for close companionship and fellowship? Who do we choose to spend a lot of time with? You see, the the Bible says that the ungodly not only do things which displease the Lord, but they heartily encourage others to do the same. They're not neutral in whether you walk with the Lord or not. They're actually against you walking with the Lord. Another way that we need to be watchful over our lives, I think one of the things that is a symptom of not watching one's own soul is attitudes of irreverence or disrespect. This may be towards God's house, may be towards the means of grace, may be disrespect of God-given authority, whether parental authority or the authority of the teacher or the authority of the pastor or the authority even of the civil magistrate. When a person begins to backslide and when they are not watchful and when they're not on guard, what happens? Well, they, they develop a resistance to the means of grace. And a carelessness may even overcome them and and they even even to the point of disrespect, disrespect to preaching, disrespect to the Lord's table, disrespect of the Bible being read at home at the dinner table, disrespect to parents that are are seeking to instruct in ways of wisdom. And even disrespect of authority, God given state authority, the sword has been given to the civil magistrate. And if self-discipline doesn't check you and family discipline doesn't check you and church discipline doesn't check you, usually the sword and the state will eventually. We are also to be on guard, I think, from worldliness. Jesus says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness, which also I think you could apply to worldliness, a fondness. With the world, its culture, its values, its priorities, its outlook. I had a pastor friend of mine. We went to seminary together and he's of another reformed denomination. And his wife tragically committed adultery and later left the home and was excommunicated by the church. And I was on the phone with my friend and seeking as best I could by God's help to console and comfort and encourage. And one of the things I did ask him, I said, did you see any warning signs before the discovery of her sin? And it was a very interesting answer. I didn't expect this. He said, oh, yes. 
She began to get increasingly into heavy rock music, which seemed odd to me. Now, here again, you might think, oh, pastor, you know, that's nonsense. I can listen to rock music. But notice here. It was a disposition of the heart, though, that had changed. It was it was a, a desire for that kind of worldview. Tastes begin to change. Tastes for worldliness rather than holiness. Dress becomes more immodest or worldly. The, the style becomes maybe goth, which emphasizes death and blackness and darkness. Everything's dark. The nails are painted black. Uh, the hair is dyed excessively black. All the clothing is black. These subtle shifts, being on guard for these things, Jesus says, we need to be watchful. The attitude of the heart does make its appearances in our appearances. Neglect of the Bible. I had one young man who fell into sin confessed to me that prior to the fall, the only Bible reading he could seem to do was the book of Proverbs. And when you think about it, that's the most general of the specific revelation in the Bible. He, he couldn't seem to read anything but Proverbs, couldn't put Christ before him. Didn't necessarily want to read things that would convict him uh, in his inner man. With spiritual decline, also, we need to be on guard against censoriousness towards the behavior of others. Spiritual decline, when we're not on guard, we become judgmental. When Jesus' righteousness is abandoned, when Christ's righteousness is abandoned as what gains us acceptance with God, we generally have to find something to take its place. So that we can comfort an accusing conscience. And so some then, if they're not on guard, turn to a self-justifying works view of righteousness or a self-righteousness. Something has to fill the void that is left by Christ when we don't apply Christ to our lives. And I think you can see this in the story of David. That when David had sinned in adulterous uh, relationship with Bathsheba... And it had gone on for, we think, months, actually, unconfessed. It's interesting that when Nathan finally comes and and when Nathan brings up the story of the wealthy man who stole the poor man's one ewe lamb that was a pet for the family. What is David's reaction? David's response is that man needs to die. David goes beyond the law, doesn't he? He he invokes the death penalty. That's not what the law of God said. The law of God said he has to pay several times over, fourfold over. He needs to make restitution. But what did David do? He judged censoriously. That man deserves death. 
And that's when Nathan said, you are the man. Adultery does deserve the death penalty. And David had committed adultery. And yet in his blindness, because he was not watchful, what had happened? He didn't realize the hypocrisy that he was living. Here he is engaged in a tremendous sin. And he's harshly judging a lesser sin as a capital offense. Some people who do not guard themselves against the enemy within may turn to self-righteous religion to justify themselves. That's why some people sometimes take hard or extreme views on certain theological points. It's not necessarily that those points are bad, but they get inflated beyond the importance that the Bible itself puts on them. Or they, they seek to work them out to such a degree that it conflicts with other moral principles that the Bible teaches. I'll give you another example. The Pharisees, you'll remember, they, they got to the point of their Sabbatarianism where they wouldn't allow a man to be healed on the Sabbath. They, they have become so hardened and censorious because they are unwatchful over their own soul. They actually go out the synagogue doors and conspire how to murder Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. Think about that just for a moment. They want to shed innocent blood because the Son of God has just done a man good on the Sabbath day. Jesus says, you hypocrites, you don't even treat your animals like the way you want me to treat this man. You'll untie your animal and give him a drink. But this poor woman who's bent over in the back for all these years, you won't allow me to release her on the Sabbath day? You see the problem? The Pharisees were completely censorious. The other one that gets me is, you know, they, Judas comes back to the temple and he throws the money in the temple, right? Who gave him that money? Well, they did. And then the money comes back and they say, oh, this is blood money. We can't have this in the temple. <laughs> You just you just use that money to kill the son of God. And but now you're worried about about that coinage in the being in the temple itself. It is just tremendous hypocrisy. And Jesus says we have to be on guard against these things in our life. Uh, that's why you can be very religious, seemingly and yet you're, you're, you're in a very dangerous condition spiritually. Some people will even then, if they don't go that way, they'll go the other way. That is, there are some who try to be hyper rigorous in their views to justify themselves, to make them feel good. You know, they're looking at pornography night after night, but, oh, I'm a six day creationist. And I'm hardcore about it. You know, that, that's how they, they justify. They seek to soothe out their, their, their sin by, by taking these really strong stands on some uh, point of doctrine. Other those go a different direction. And we have to be on guard against this. When you begin to think about this and study this, you begin to see... How many ways we can fall and how many ways we have to be on guard. 
that this is not actually an easy assignment to be on guard, is it? Some people then, what, the, what do they do? Well, they begin to adopt theological and moral positions that are actually contrary to the word of God as they spiritually decline. That is, rather than becoming hyper-rigorous in regard to their own tradition, what they do is they just become theological and moral liberals instead. We, we often see this on college campuses as well. I had a very close friend of mine from high school. Uh, she led me to the, probably the first Bible study I ever went to in my life. And, uh, and, and yet, uh, through a, a lifestyle of immorality and majoring in religion at Davidson, she ended up denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some, because they're not on guard about their own personal life, what do they do? They adopt different perspectives theologically and morally. They deny Jesus as deity. They begin to question inerrancy of the Bible. You know, I've told you this illustration before. There was one wise professor. Every time a student came into his office and said, you know, I have doubts about the Bible. His first question to them was, what's her name? Who are you sleeping with? That's why you are having trouble with the Bible. You're not having some intellectual problem with the Bible. You, have a, you are having a moral problem with the Bible. It's because you're involved in fornication. That you, you, you're getting confused. And up seems down and down seems up and right seems wrong and wrong is right. And good is bad and bad is good. And so they, they'll deny the inerrancy of the Bible. They'll, they'll justify and say, oh, no, this is an intellectual problem I'm having. Oh, no, it's not. It's a spiritual problem you're having. Or they'll deny the resurrection or they change their views. They begin to support homosexuals uh, getting married or support and condone premarital sex. Why not? They're doing it themselves. And so they, they adopt these views of the world uh, because they're sexually immoral. Or they're getting drunk or they're doing drugs. And as the immorality increases in their life, because they're not on guard for that now, what do they do? They seek out teachers whose instruction will give them intellectual cover. They'll seek out teachers who will accommodate or justify their sinful behavior. Now questioning the Bible is is fair game. Liberal professors are now their heroes. Sexual immorality and theological liberalism are friends. They're allies. Losing your faith and losing your virginity as an unmarried single many times are concurrent. Now, God, by his grace, can rescue people who do fall. And we have to thank the Lord for that. But Jesus is saying here, be on guard. Be on the watch. That a sudden calamity or judgment not catch you like a trap. Now, how do I watch? I was talking about what are some things we need to watch for, but how do I watch? Well, I think we watch by meditating, by thinking, by the Bible enjoins us to examine ourselves. We need to take inventory. Of ourselves, We need to do a diagnostic test. We need to run our computer and see if we have any viruses within us. And, and need to, you know, don't let any root of bitterness 
Grow up within you, the Bible says. There's, there's an example. The Bible says that well, you need to assert yourself. Are you allowing bitterness into your life? Um, are there areas of weakness, ways in which you are drifting in your obedience, evangelical obedience? How about your relationship with others? Are there people that you need to go and ask forgiveness for because of what you've said or what you've done? This is going to require some reflection. And the trouble is we don't live in a reflective age. Every moment of our culture seems to have to be filled up with media. It's like almost like the chief sin of our culture is silence. I think about sometimes how strange it must seem to even so many evangelicals that our church sits in silence before we begin to worship. Because that's not allowed. I mean, I can't even I can't even go to some gas station. They won't even leave me alone in peace at the gas station now as I'm pumping gas to have any moment to myself. I have to have this screen on the gas pump giving me the weather, telling me about this commercial, this car I need to buy. It's ridiculous. Really? At the gas pump? (laughs) This will only take a minute. Just leave me alone. How many of our restaurants have to be filled with screens and televisions? So Jesus says, watch, keep on the alert. But secondly, oh, wow. All right. Pray. This is going to go faster. (laughs) In addition to watching, self-examining, reflecting, meditating upon your spiritual condition, Jesus says, That we maintain our guard, secondly, through prayer. As we reflect, we pray. Prayer is a means of keeping close communion with God. Prayer brings refreshment to our souls and fortification against sin and temptation. It strengthens us for duties and inoculates us from sinful contagions. Prayer is where we get the fire that our soul needs for the things we have to do. You know, I find if I don't pray... I, I feel like I'm starting to do things in my own strength. And I know that that's never a good thing. Prayer gives us strength for the work that is ours. Prayer gives us, you know, Beaky has this saying, and I love it. Beaky says, you know, and maybe it's not original with him, but he says, you can do more than prayer. You can do more than pray, but you can't do more without prayer. And, and those who neglect prayer are like the lazy servant who realizes his master is going to be gone for some time and then he begins to engage in disobedient activities. The sleepy and the prayerless are usually caught by surprise. They're like the foolish virgins who run out of oil and they have to go to town to get some more and then it's too late. The bridegroom's already arrived. Prayer keeps our lamps filled with oil. That's where we find strength in the Lord is when we pray. You know, we see this in the life positively of David when Ziklag was overrun and the, the city was burned and, and, the, and the wives and the children were taken captive. And you remember that the, the fellow soldiers of David were so distraught about it that they wanted to kill David. They were talking about stoning David. And, and the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Prayer is preparation for heaven. And for the coming of the Lord, prayer brings us to a place of glory. And that's where we're headed as a church. 
We can't see the throne room with our eyes, but we can go there in the spirit every time we pray. People who pray much are not likely to lose their heads in times of calamity and stress. People who walk closely with God know that he is with them and he is sovereign. And great upheavals of empires, you know, you think about Daniel, great upheaval of empire. I mean, it was, it was kind of like the Soviet Union collapsing. Babylon collapses. And the Medes and the Persians take their place. And Daniel's in both administrations. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> and this is a guy who gave himself three times a day to praying out his window towards Jerusalem. He gave himself to prayer. You know, those who pray today have a window facing heaven. Let me close by saying this. We, know, we won't know. We don't know when calamity may come. When war may engage all our national and individual strength, but prayer builds strength and serenity of character that will be needed. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a friend of his who was in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. You remember from the 80s. And there was a time of national stress and calamity in Great Britain. And it was interesting that Margaret Thatcher in that cabinet meeting turned to Dr. Ferguson's friend and said, Will you lead us in prayer that the world knows who to look to in times of stress when our own resources are not sufficient? Here's the other thing. If you don't give yourself to prayer when the calamity comes, you won't be able to pray. Those who do not pray when the leaves are out and the grass is green and the waters are still will not be able to pray. When the day of calamity comes, they will find themselves caught as though in a trap. Amen.